Hello, my lovely podcast listeners. Welcome back. Today, we're going to be at the Calvert Marine Museum, and it's the final installment of the three-part series that we've been doing on this lovely museum in Southern Maryland. And a few things before we get started. Um, This will actually be the last time that you will hear the audio from my old equipment. So I did these last three uh, interviews in like two days and I had my old equipment. So it's been like the past, what, six weeks? Because I only release an episode every two weeks. So for the past six weeks, I've had to suffer through this audio and I really appreciate you guys sticking with me and suffering through it too. But just so you know, this is the last time that you will hear that type of audio. And it is a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say bad, but there are some spots that kind of tick a bit. And I've, I've done quite a bit of editing. So it's still kind of not perfect, but there's still good information in here. So please still try to give it a listen. And to kind of make it a little bit easier to listen to, and because there were some issues during the recording, what I've kind of done is I've taken a lot of the information that he has given and I, I kind of re-recorded it myself just so that way it was a little bit easier on your guys' ears to hear. And that way you also didn't miss out on any of the cool information that he shared with me during the interview. So there's that. And anybody who is listening in and hasn't checked out the website, I have a really cool website that I maintain and it's kind of basically like a blog post almost that I make for each episode where you can go to curatorschoicepodcast.com and on there it's got all the different pictures from the museum that I visited and I include some really cool article links uh, and things like that so feel free to check that out and you can also go on to Facebook where I post fun little tidbits and also on Instagram because I'm just so social media savvy yes but anyway Diving into the actual episode of what we're talking about today, we're going to be doing kind of maritime history of uh, Southern Maryland, and a huge part of that, obviously, is the Chesapeake Bay and all the, you know, rivers that are associated with that, all the tributaries, so it's kind of this really vast network that was super important to really everywhere on this side of the coast, but particularly the areas of Maryland. And... You know, I'm going on talking about how great this was. It was a really desirable area because, it, I mean, it had a ton of industry that was there. Commerce was happening a lot. It was an easy way to get close to D.C. And what this area experienced was uh, a lot of desire for people to capture that area and control it. Because if you, you know, if you captured the mouth of this area, you controlled the entire bay. And so, you know, during the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, you know, the British were keen on trying to blockade that mouth and, like, take control of the whole bay. And that bay was prominent in a lot of wars. Um, There was a lot of fights done, small skirmishes, big battles, the siege of Baltimore. Um, It kind of ended up resulting, the Star-Spangled Banner resulted in some of the things that were happening, fights in the bay, Um, different skirmishes, the... The Patuxent River was important when the bridge when the British came up and burned Washington in the War of 1812. You know they used the waterways to get there, and there's a ton of history. The Civil War, uh, Battle of Hampton Roads, Clash of the Titans. You know, so in the the mouth of the bay, there were the Hampton Roads 
battle and it was kind of a seminal event because it marks the transition from you know sailing wooden ship wooden ships to using steam vessels ironclad steam vessels and really all that happened in the bay so it's kind of just like a sneak peek of why this area is so important and how cool some of the history is so just continue to give a listen and we're going to hear some things from the actual expert not just someone who was able to google some cool stuff online Today, uh, we're going to be, we're at the Calvert Marine Museum in Southern Maryland, and I'm speaking with Mark Wilkins, who is the curator of maritime history. Um, so why don't you go ahead and just talk a little bit about yourself, what your job here at the museum is, and then we can kind of go from there. The position that I have here is basically a, it's kind of like a jack of all trades. You have to be a little bit of a scholar, you have to be a little bit of a boat builder, you have to be a little bit of a sailor, you have to be an administrator, uh, you have to be ready for anything, basically. We have... Within the Maritime History Department, we have two historic lighthouses, Cove Point and Drum, Drum Point Lighthouse, Lower Oyster House, which is down the street. Uh, we have two large 60-foot or 85-foot vessels, a skipjack, the D of St. Mary's, and the William B. Tennyson. Then we have a small collection of other floating watercraft, plus um, a static collection of watercraft. In addition to that, we have an archival uh, facility with a very large um, marine-related library, everything from... Uh, sea nettles to skipjacks to tankers to uh, boat building anything to do with the water there's books and um, periodicals on that subject we have a large archival holding of maps plans photographs letters journals those are open to the public, they're right? open to the public absolutely you just have to make an appointment with our registrar robert hurry and um, you can come in and have access to this wonderful material so um, that's a little bit about me uh, actually, my career with maritime history began when my family visited Mystic Seaport in Connecticut, and I was stung on the ear of the quarterdeck of the Charles Morgan. I remember being in the first aid station, screaming my eyes out, just like, ah! <laughs> and that sort of burned the sort of maritime interest uh, from that very early age. I, that's one of the things that I was really amazed with this museum is um, when you when you kind of pull into the drive, you don't really see the front of the museum until you get to the parking lot, and then there's actually this really... I mean, there's a big museum, you guys have so many items, and then you have all this other stuff around. So it's really great for families because there's so much to do here. You can walk out. You guys have a nice little walkway that goes out into the water, has some right. seating spaces. Right. You have an outdoor gallery of all these old boats. Yep. Um, and so, and then you have a little lighthouse that people can go check out the lighthouse that's yes. right there. Okay. So, Basically, in the summertime, in seasonable weather, you can take you can go on a ride on the Deep St. Mary's. It has a capacity of 40 people, non-coded. Um, and so does the William B. Tennyson. So for a small fee, you can go out for a ride on either of these boats out onto the water. Plus, we have a small collection of skiffs and pedal boats for free that you can take out. You just come down to the waterfront during like July, August, and there's on the weekends, and there's somebody there to facilitate that. Um, so you can go out in the boat basin and around, throw around in little pedal boats. <laughs> so kind of going when, when you come into the museum and you actually start touring the area mm -hmm. of maritime history, yeah. kind of walk us through like what you what you can expect to see in the history there. Okay, so um, entering is a main, very prominent gallery with the Carlos Sioux, which is, a, um, I believe it's a three-log uh, fishing vessel, single-mast, sloopering. Uh, you can't miss it because it's, the, it's a huge boat in the middle of the museum, and that sort of kicks off the main maritime gallery. And to the right... You have um, various vignettes that display the trades, like blacksmithing, woodworking. There's an um, engine a component that shows all the early um, gasoline and then diesel engines that were used on fishing vessels and pleasure craft uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, moving 
on, you basically have a huge display on the fishing industry in Chesapeake Bay. The boats that were used, the tools of the trade, like oyster dredges, oyster tongs, the canneries that were, as I mentioned, Lower Oyster House was an oyster packing plant, and the oysters were harvested on the bay, brought to this place, canned, and then shipped out all over the country by rail and by, by coasters. By, um, that's kind of, that was kind of a huge industry in the Solomons and, and in Maryland in general, um, oyster packing. Oysters were, um, when, when the early 17th century, oysters were about a foot wide. They were huge because they were, it was a virgin resource that hadn't been harvested except by native peoples conservatively. And so it was a sustainable fishery that native peoples enjoyed for thousands of years. <laughs> so the English came and basically harvested the heck out of it. Um, uh, and it continued such that the oyster fishery had to be regulated eventually by the federal government. So this federal regulation actually led to the oyster wars during the 19th century. Oyster wars. I know it sounds crazy. So what was really happening was the feds were putting on all these restrictions to try to reduce the amount of harvest that was happening to the oysters. They actually created a little oyster navy to enforce these regulations. They uh, fired upon boats. They were actually acts of burning boats. It was quite rebellious because, you know, these fishermen, they relied on the oyster industry for their only income. That was their livelihood. That's how they took care of their families. So they were kind of like, forget the federal government. I'm going to do what I want to do. So there was this huge clash. And I mean, there was even like oyster piracy happening and the fishermen were just going out at night to not get caught. So clearly this wasn't working. They had to come up with something else. So they introduced a different regulation that said that fishermen could only fish under sail. So this actually gives birth to the, a, a new type of vessel called a skipjack. So what they were trying to do was make this work around to where they could still follow the law and only you know, collect harvest oysters under sail, but they still had kind of a little way of making sure that their motorized vehicles could still take them out quickly and bring the catch back in quickly. So these skipjacks were these cheap flat bottom boats that any fisherman could build you know, in their backyard. It was super easy to produce. And then on the stern of that, they would actually have a little push boat, which was like a little motorized launch um, and it nestled on the stern, and you could drop it down into water or also lift it back up. So when you're heading out to the fishing grounds, you can drop your little push boat into the water and make it out quickly to the fishing area, and then you pull it back in, put it on the stern of the boat, and then raise up your sail and go fishing for the oysters so you're still following the law. And then when you are ready for your take to be taken to the market or to the processing plant, there was a little small motorized vessel that would come out to the fishing grounds. They would offload the catch onto that little buy boat, and then that buy boat would take it to the market or the processing, what, what have you. So that's kind of where skipjacks actually came from. And it was from this workaround of these fishermen finding a way through federal regulation. So the exhibit, you know, it kind of walks you around through everything. Um, but one thing that I thought really stood out, and obviously it does because it's a major piece, but your, the vessel that you have that was made in a less traditional way, the, the one that's... The, 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 the Yes. Yes, log boat, yeah. So tell us a little bit kind of about, about that. What's neat about that is Maryland boat builders co-opted Native people's methodology for building boats. Um, the Native peoples like to follow out a log. Basically, they would use a uh, 
variety of tools. They would burn the top of the log and scrape and continue to burn, so the fire would do most of the work. Actually, they'd cook fish on top of that, so they like, you know, multitasking, basically, which is very cool. So what New England boat builders kind of did is they, they brought this different approach with them over from the British. You know, the, the British had a very particular way of making their own boats, and they were going to do it that way because that's the right way, the British way. So, you know, they cut these logs into planks, and then they built the boats from these different kinds of planks. But, you know, after a while of doing that, uh, we kind of ran out of big trees. I mean, there, you know, there was a lot of deforestation happening at that time and not a ton of conservation efforts in that kind of an aspect. So it became kind of hard to find a lot of big trees to make these big planks out of. And, you know, going back to what Mark just said about, you know, the indigenous people, how they built the boats. So that kind of actually started to be adopted a little bit by some of the people in the Solomons area. They started making these kinds of um, pencil boats is kind of what I think of them. So, you know, they got a lot of different logs that have smaller diameter and they basically, you know, bound them together, just like if you were picking up a bundle of pencils. And then they dug out the inside and that's what they made their boats out of. So basically the same with the indigenous people, how they took one large boat and they kind of burned out the center and that was their small craft. We did the same thing a little bit later, but we just did them with a bunch of small pieces of wood bundled together. And that is kind of represented by the Carla Sioux. I was also really interested in, um, I guess it's not necessarily the uh, most important for maritime history, but within that section of the museum, you guys have the gigantic tobacco barrel. Yes, well, yeah, I mean, that's what basically saved Maryland economically, or funded Maryland for that matter, Virginia and Maryland, the tobacco trade. So we have a tobacco, what's called a tobacco prize, which is basically a large, it's like a uh, gallows that has a worm gear that is threaded through the top of it with a plunger and you pack tobacco in the bottom of a barrel and this thing, you turn the gear and it pushes the plunger down and compresses it so that you can fit as much tobacco into that hogshead as uh, a large barrel as you can. So kind of like a, if you had like a butter churn, a really simplified butter churn where you have everything in the bottom and you're pushing the plunger yes. down. Yes, So, and then that was then, I mean, tobacco was basically harvested inland and this since Chesapeake Bay is such an amazing network of rivers and creeks and whatnot, if you get to plantations inland and you basically the most efficient way to transport it was by water. So they would, they would load these hogsheads on small docks, they would load them into barges or punts or um, small vessels and then brought to main ports like Annapolis or, or Baltimore to be the, originally to be sent over to England because it was an exclusive trade with England. That was the deal. This was all exports. Um, that's more history, but England wanted to consolidate and monopolize the tobacco trade from the colonies um, because it funded royal finance. That's how King paid his bills, was through import taxes on tobacco. So um, that's why it all went to England. And um, then England further stipulated these navigation acts that it had to be brought over in English bottoms or vessels. So the English wanted to keep their boat building trade alive by stipulating that you know we can't can't bring this stuff over just any boat, uh, not French, not Spanish. Has to be British boats. Tobacco trade was huge in Maryland, and uh, it's, it's all, I mean, the, the soil the conditions, uh, the humid conditions were perfect, as in Virginia, for growing tobacco here. And you still see, driving through any countryside, you still see plenty of tobacco barns. There are barns absolutely everywhere. Everywhere. Here. everywhere. 
I believe, I'm, you might want to fact check this, but I believe it is illegal to demolish one. I think you have to do something with it. This is why they, a lot of them are dilapidated. They're still standing. And people repurpose them for other things. Are you guys getting a little bit of audio whiplash? My apologies. The audio went out a little bit here, so we just kind of were talking about different things that the museum had, and then I not so subtly directed the conversation to talking about my favorite item that this museum had, which is this absolute beautiful lighthouse. The prettiest thing out there is uh, the lighthouse. <laughs> Drum Point Lighthouse. It, it, yeah, it's it was originally at Drum Point, which is just under a mile from here, at the point um, kind of where the confluence of where the bay meets the Hudson River. It was out there late into the mid 70s, 1970s, and it was falling into disrepair and needed a home. So we took it on, we brought it here, um, wonderful documentation of the move, and then restored it, right? And it's it accounts for about 40% of our visitation. People love to come to see the lighthouse. Well, you can, it's kind of, uh, it looks like it's a little chicken hen house lifted up on stilts, kind of, <laughs> which probably is a painful analogy to hear. But it is, it's kind of like up on stilts, so you can go up and then there's the first floor, and then how you said it had two stories yes. in it. Well, it's called a screw pile lighthouse, which basically, when you think about a typical lighthouse, you think of sort of a truncated cone uh, structure, like on a piece of land. Well, screw pile meant that they they basically had uh, multiple legs that had a little um, auger hit on the bottom that they screwed into the ocean bed, and that formed the supports. This was developed in England, okay, that was the first screw pile, and um, on the town, on the River Thames. And um, anyway, this, the Army Corps of Engineers developed a system to install these things, and um, it's a cottage-style lighthouse on the screw pile foundation. So it enabled you to go out in the water and put a lighthouse, which was kind of cool, because you couldn't do that unless you had a piece of land to put it on. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good example of a screw pile lighthouse. Uh, St. Michael's, uh, the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum has another one. We like ours better. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm here, but I do too. Um. <laughs> so, interestingly, it has, um, so it would sit on, it would sit out in the water and, uh, you would get to everywhere that you needed to go by boat. And interestingly enough, we're building what's called the Keeper's Boat in the Guild right now. It's a boat that was hung from davits, which are little struts that hang out and hang a boat on it. And that would be a boat that you go to the post office, you go to the food store. That's how you basically got what you need to get uh, in those, you know, if you're out in the water in a lighthouse like that. So, um, how far out into the water was it originally? Not very far. The U.S. Lighthouse Service would bring. Um, fixed rations and supplies for you once a month, like coal, would be like salt pork, X pounds of coffee, X pounds of flour, X pounds of sugar. So you would give them these supplies, but you had to supplement that with like fresh produce and that kind of thing. That was, that's a prominent artifact. It's the centerpiece of the harbor. That and our two, the Deep St. Mary's and the Tennyson are big, big boats. So you see those um, in a lot of our literature and websites, you see those prominent things. And that's all maritime history. And I think I kind of want to also make you talk a little bit more about the Tennyson because yeah. you were telling me about how old the vessel yeah. is and how it's actually still a working vessel technically yeah. because it's a living piece of museum yeah. that people can go on. Well, it's the oldest nine log when we talked about the log canoes or log vessels. This was originally called a bug eye, which is a sailing vessel, very raked masts. And um, in 1907, it was converted to a biboat, and the masts were chopped off for the pilot house on the stern and an engine. And then it was able to go out. So yeah, this boat was um, vessel was built um, late 
19th century. He learned to buy boat in 1907 and serves as that right up I think, through the 1950s, 60s, something like that. And uh, what's cool about it is it's in good shape. It's Coast Guard certified for passengers. So if you come to the museum, you can go for a ride on that, you know, pre-COVID on a capacity of about 40 people to sit on the deck and get a river cruise. COVID is down to about half that, so 20. Socially distanced with masks. You can still go out uh, during the COVID crisis on the Tennyson. It's very popular. So if you really want to get your hands on some history, you can actually go on the boat. Go on the boat. You can also go on the of St. Mary's, which is a skipjack. They will go out there, they will raise sail, and you go for a sail on a skipjack, which is a delightful way to spend an afternoon. It really is. It's a nice, stable, easygoing boat. Now that we've kind of talked about the exhibit and what the museum has to offer, we have a few items that are specific items that you brought out for us to talk about. So one of these things is a beautiful brass telescope measuring about four feet long by about four inches in diameter. It's set on a beautiful uh, oak tripod. Um, this was uh, a prominent little uh, fixture at Cove Point. Cove Point is one of our lighthouses and um, it's, it's basically marks one of the narrowest pinch points of the bay. Cove Point shuts out into the bay. So it's, all ships have to pass through there, so it's easier to identify them. So some guy would sit at this telescope, usually one of the um, lighthouse keeper or one of his um, staff, and they would monitor traffic going up the bay. And the reason they did this was look through that telescope and figure out what rig the vessel was, about how, what its tonnage was. If it was really low in the water, it was heavily loaded, so they knew it was full, full cargo load. Um, often they had um, some indication of what was aboard based on the books, which you have to log a manifest and whatnot. They would tell the Port of Baltimore, this thing's about X hours out for you. You need to get these people lined up on the docks to unload all this stuff, right? Refuel the vessel, all of these stevedores, longshoremen, all this stuff, so that the um, Port of Baltimore could operate efficiently. And when was that? Mid-19th century. The other thing that we have out, which is kind of interesting, is uh, Pepper Langley, who uh, made many of the models. He's a long tradition association of the museum. His son, Jimmy Langley, worked here in exhibits. Um, Pepper was a carver, model maker, jack-of-all-trades, very talented. And one one of his jobs was he built model prototypes for the Navy, for the Air Museum. So what we actually have over here is a model of an A7 Corsair, which was a frontline fighter jet, carrier jet, uh, Vietnam era, a little bit before. Um, and um, his, his job with this particular model was to pro- test a uh, coding that would be used uh, for communications. It was a communications system with this aircraft. And one of the things about it was a specialized coding. I don't want to give away any Navy secrets, but no, no, no. apparently that's... My what, podcast can't be known as that kind of a podcast. Yeah, yeah. so that's that's kind of what this prototype was used for. It's a model measures about three feet long by about two feet wide. And, and you can kind of see it's got kind of the under, you know, the base of the model, but then there's also this, like, overcoat of, like, metal it's looking... A, yeah, it's a metallic coating, and we actually... I was just talking to a registrar. We need to find somebody to conserve it, because it's kind of... I won't say it's falling apart, but it needs a little attention. Needs some love. Um, Needs some love, exactly. So um, that's what Pepper did. He developed prototype models that would then be tested over the air station for various things, whether it was navigation or weapons or um, whatever the system was that they needed to test. He would actually carve a model of these aircraft and they would use them to test them, wind tunnels and things like that. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much for doing this with me and sharing 
imparting with us some of your knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it was very, a lot of fun. Very happy. It was fun. Very happy to do this. Thank you.